Greetings. Joseph Kursky here with you on another edition of the Thinking Spatially podcast series, where we think spatially about the Earth, everything that's in it, and beyond. Today's episode is about Copernicus. Copernicus, establishing correct Earth-Sun relationships. Copernicus, establishing correct Earth-Sun relationships. The relationship between the Earth and the Sun is one of the fundamental relationships of geography. Indeed, it drives a myriad of systems and cycles that affect the planet and its people, past, present, and future. These include the Earth's climate, seasons, weather, ocean currents, biomes, energy budget, and magnetism, just to name a few. But to correctly understand how these systems interact required the correct placement of the Earth in the solar system in relationship to the Sun. For centuries, the Earth was placed as it naturally seemed to the observer, at the center of the solar system, indeed at the center of the universe. Not until the 16th century did a radical change occur in that thinking thanks to Nicholas Copernicus, 1473-1543, who placed the Sun at the center, a heliocentric model. Heliocentric. In so doing, he caused a revolution in geographic thought and helped usher in the scientific revolution. Copernicus lived at the time when it was possible to be a polymath. He obtained a doctorate in canon law and practiced as a scholar of classic literature and as a physician, translator, governor, diplomat, economist, and scientist. Pretty impressive list. In economics, he formed an influential quantity theory of money. He spoke Latin, German, Polish, Greek, and Italian. He was born and died in Royal Prussia, a region of the world that had been a part of Poland since just before his birth. His book that caused the revolution, De Revolutionibus Orbium Solestium, on the revolutions of the celestial spheres, was not published until just before his death in 1543. Like other geographers, Copernicus had key influences. Even his name was geographical. His region and his father's trade focused on copper. Upon the death of his father, his maternal uncle, Lucas Vattenrode, W-A-T-Z-E-N-R-O-D-E, oversaw Nicholas's career, preparing him for entrance to the University of Krakow, Wattenrode's alma mater in Poland's then capital. At the university, he studied math and science and began collecting a large library on astronomy. He analyzed the logical contradictions in two popular systems, Aristotle's theory of homocentric spheres and Ptolemy's mechanism of eccentrics and epicycles, the discarding of which constituted the first step toward the creation of his own doctrine. While in Italy, three key influences were his meeting astronomer Domenico Maria Novara de Ferrara, witnessing a lunar eclipse, and attending a calendar reform conference. To create an accurate calendar and to calculate the length of the year required a completely different model than the Earth-centered one. Like many other geographers, he was keenly involved in and influenced by the political geography of his day and region. The Kingdom of Poland, the Prussian Confederation, the Thirteen Years' War, the Teutonic Order. 
In fact, he did more than observe the political system. He served as diplomat, as I mentioned earlier, and even signed peace treaties. At some point before 1514, Coper Copernicus wrote a 40-page outline of his heliocentric theory, Nicolae Copernicae de Hypothesibus Motuum Solestium, Ase Constitutus Commemoralis, the Commemoralis or Little Commentary. After returning to Poland, he constructed a small observation tower at his home. Pretty cool, hey? From which, in 1515, he discovered the eccentricity or variability of the Earth's orbit and of the movement of the solar apogee in relationship to the fixed stars. By 1532, Copernicus had completed De Revolutionibus Orbium Solestium, and despite urging by his closest friends, he resisted openly publishing his views, not wishing, as he confessed, to risk the scorn, quote, to which he would expose himself on account of the novelty and incomprehensibility of his theses, end quote. Nevertheless, by the next year, he had gained the interest of Pope Clement VII, several Catholic cardinals, and by 1536, of educated people from all over Europe. Finally, in 1543, he finally agreed to get, give the manuscript to his friend, Tiedemann Gezi, Bishop of Chelmno, to be delivered for printing by the German printer Johannes Petrius at Nürnberg, Germany. Legend has it that he was presented with the final printed pages of his book on the very day that he died, waking from a stroke-induced coma, looking at his book, and then dying peacefully. Whatever the last day of his life was like, his influence was just beginning. In around 400 BCE, Philolaus described an astronomical system in which a central fire occupied the universe's center. Ponticus, 387-312 BCE, proposed that the Earth rotates on its axis. Aristarchus, 310-230 BCE, was the first to advance a theory that the Earth orbited the Sun, refined later by Seleucus. Despite these thinkers, the prevailing theory was the one postulated by Ptolemy in 150 CE in Almagest, namely that the Earth was the stationary center of the universe with the stars embedded in a large outer sphere that rotated daily, with the planets, sun, and moon embedded in their own smaller spheres. Accounting for the differing path of these objects required a complicated geometric circular system of epicycles, deferents, and equants. Thus, in light of the prevailing Ptolemaic theory, Copernicus's views were revolutionary. Copernicus, his commentaralis, listed the assumptions upon which the heliocentric theory was based. Colon, there is no one center of all these celestial circles or spheres. The center of the Earth is not the center of the universe, but only of gravity and of the lunar sphere. All the spheres revolve around the sun as their midpoint, and therefore the sun is at the center of the universe. The distance from the Earth to the sun is imperceptible in comparison with the height of the firmament, or stars. Whatever motion appears in the firmament, arises not from any motion of the firmament, but from the Earth's motion. The Earth, together with its circumjacent elements, performs a complete rotation on its fixed poles in a daily motion, while the firmament and highest heaven abide unchanged. What appear to us as motions of the sun arise not from its motion, but from the motion of the Earth and our sphere, with which we revolve around the sun like any other planet. The Earth has, then, more than one motion.
Copernicus's theory simplified the universe and its motions in significant ways. For example, the periodic backward motion of the in the sky of Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn was more readily explained by the fact Earth overtook them as the Earth circled the Sun more rapidly than they. Despite the fact that it would later be shown that the Sun was not the center of the universe but only of our own solar system, and despite the fact that Copernicus held that ob orbits were circular and not elliptical, Copernicus had it right on nearly every count. Yet his theory was originally slow to being accepted. Perhaps this was because at the time no instrument could observe a, a shifting or parallax of the stars that should exist if the Earth were revolving around the Sun. Perhaps because Copernicus only added 27 astronomical observations during his lifetime. Perhaps because Without a telescope, still being 50 years away, he could not account for the phases of Mercury and Venus, which had to exist if his theory were true. Perhaps it was because in those early days of print, only a small number of his books could be reproduced. Perhaps because it was the Lutheran clergyman, Osiander's preface to Copernicus's book, stated that the heliocentric theory was not presented as an actual fact, but as an abstract concept to allow for better calculations of planetary positions. No matter. No great work was circulated less widely and read by fewer people than Copernicus's revolutions. It was reprinted only three times prior to the 20th century. However, Copernicus's influence on thinkers and theories that followed after him was enormous. Johannes Kepler's laws of planetary motions and Newton's laws of gravity were direct influences in the following 150 years. But equally revolutionary were Copernicus's reliance on some scientific observation and mathematical calculations to support his ideas. Ptolemy had bent the facts to fit his theory, and his teachings had been accepted without question for centuries. Copernicus developed his theory to match observed facts. He thus ushered in the scientific method and helped overthrow the then popular reliance on the unproven ideas of ancient Greek philosophers. And contrary to popular belief, only mild controversy followed the publication of his book. The Catholic Church did not take any official action against it for 73 years, when it was occasioned by Galileo's teachings. In the tenth chapter of his first book, Copernicus made a straightforward revolutionary statement. Quote, in the center rests the sun. For who would place this lamp of a very beautiful temple in another or a better place than this, wherefrom it can illuminate everything at the same time? Indeed, the understanding of the world and its place in the universe, and all that was to follow in geographic thought, would never be the same again. And that, my friends, is a bit about Copernicus, establishing correct Earth-Sun relationships. I hope this has been enlightening and illuminating, and gives you pause for reflection, and also makes you think about spatial patterns, relationships, and trends, which is the focus of our Thinking Spatially podcast. I wish you all a very pleasant and spatial day. Thanks.